0: This is Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer and your host for today, Paul Ingalls. Today we want to call your attention to a film documentary released in 2020 The Card Here's the trailer, and I'm going to read what's only printed on the screen. You'll get right away why it seemed like a good item to feature on Peace Talks Radio.
1: If the client doesn't have the means to get the housing that he needs, tell him not to worry about it. Tell him the Welcome Fund covered it. They're going
2: to repossess my car, and I'm not going to be able to get to school. I'm going to mess everything all up again.
1: I'm a hard worker. I want to be a good mom. The globe is most unkind when we determine that someone's life holds more value than another person's. It's the start
2: of unkindness. We need to protect the rights of the smallest minority because in
3: doing that, we're protecting our own rights. That's what the Constitution is reminding us. Stand up for each
0: other.
1: The hate that exists in this country could be our destruction, or it could be our clarion call.
0: If ever there was a time for understanding. What country is she in? She is right now in Ethiopia. Horrific
1: things happen to refugees. Most of the people that we are resettling have fled Violent outbursts of civil war, ongoing conflict. Some of those people are traumatized. And how do you help such people?
0: If ever there was a time for compassion.
1: In America, why will people be still sleeping on
4: the street?
0: You take two good care of me, really do.
5: The first piece of capital that we all need as humans is trust.
0: From filmmakers Kahani Cooperman and John Hoffman. I want to make a change, and I want our generation to be an aspect of that change.
5: Putting time and practice into family, love, being a good neighbor.
1: Stand if you have ever gone to a study session and you or someone brought food. Stand if you have ever lent or borrowed a textbook.
0: The single most important thing for us all is caring for your fellow man. If you have that in your arsenal, you can do just about everything. If ever there was a time for decency.
1: Stand if you helped a fellow student out with encouragement, direction, accountability, or even love. We all are here today because we all helped each other. We need to be kind, respectful, and responsible within society to live in a civil democracy.
0: If ever there was a time for kindness.
1: I think it's the glue that holds us together. It's just really important because without kindness, we'd all be
0: maniacs. The film is called The Antidote. And among the stories featured in the film, and that you heard excerpted in the trailer, is a program offering health service to the homeless in Boston. A resettlement support services project helping refugees from the Democratic Republic of the Congo adjust to a very different life in Anchorage, Alaska. A community college in Amarillo, Texas, really going the extra mile to remove the emotional, logistical, and financial barriers that students face there as they try to improve themselves to contribute more substantially to their families and to their community. Also at Decatur, Georgia Baptist Church, going off the more common script and opening up its doors to embrace and include the LGBTQ plus community and in an intentionally intergenerational living community in Portland, Oregon, matching young people in foster care with elderly residents who offer love and compassionate guidance. And we also caught glimpses of and heard from two people in the trailer that we'll be talking to later in our program. One is Diamond Harges in Indianapolis, Indiana. He's a community organizer who seems to be crafting meaningful change by bringing out the gifts and talents of his neighbors in a neighborhood that's been through tough times there. The focal point of the project is a bike shop that employs young people to recondition bikes for others. Multi-generational and multi-ethnic adults pitch in to help at the bike shop. And we're also going to visit later with Modesto, California high school teacher, Sherry McIntyre, who has since 2000 been teaching freshmen about the history of world religions. The ninth graders learn how to engage with different ideas, cultures, and beliefs in McIntyre's class and then are on their way to becoming more open-minded, accepting young adults. All these stories are on display in the film The Antidote, a documentary that has its own website, theantidotemovie.com, where you can find at-home streaming options for the film. Again, that's theantidotemovie.com, which is not to be confused with a 2018 zombie movie called The Antidote, by the way. We're going to start by talking with the co directors of this documentary, The Antidote. On a Zoom like connection with me from separate locales are John Hoffman and Kahani Cooperman. John Hoffman, welcome to you first.
4: Thank you very much, Paul.
0: And Kahani, welcome to you.
2: Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here.
0: Yeah, it's wonderful to talk to you. Congratulations on this uh, moving and wonderful film. What set the two of you on this path to creating this really unique celebration of compassion and kindness in the documentary called The Antidote?
4: Well, I'll I'll start in 2017 and 2018. I was really uh, disturbed by the growing sense of hate and division in the country. And I had a prior uh, relationship with a very large nonprofit health system that had funded some public health media work that I had done. And I started a conversation with their CEO, a man named Lloyd Dean, who uh, has put kindness really at the center of their their mission as as healthcare providers. And in, in talking to him and his senior leadership about how that came about, I realized that this was a really strong commitment on their part. Um, It was a very authentic um, sort of dive into kindness. And they were funding a lot of work at places like Berkeley and Stanford. And I just made an offhand remark. I said, would you ever be interested in doing a documentary about kindness? And that took off. And uh, it wasn't long before they committed to uh, an independent documentary um, of which uh, we would uh, be given total control to explore Kindness. Um, And I didn't know what that would be, but I knew that I wanted to tackle this with a co creator. And I started talking to a lot of people in my world of uh, documentary film. And uh, some uh, people I respect uh, tremendously, Don Porter and Fisher Stevens, both great filmmakers, said, You have to talk to Kahani Cooperman. And so I reached out and we had breakfast, and I'll let Kahani
0: take the story from there. Yeah. Why did they have to talk to you, Kahani? (laughs) Um,
2: Well, I think, you know, I had previously made a short documentary that was nominated for a 2017 Oscar. And it specifically uh, focused on how a, a small act of kindness has an incredible ripple effect beyond just, the donation of an item, it connected to strangers. It brought histories together, and I guess between that and some of my other work, they thought that I, I would probably um, have good insight, perspective, and just uh, the uh, humanistic viewpoint to potentially be a good partner for for John on this. And like John, you know, when we had that breakfast in twenty eighteen, I was I was really concerned about the pervasive crumbling of civility that was happening all around me that felt so unfamiliar and haunting because had it been there all along, I just thought, wow, what an interesting time in history to really, really explore this idea of kindness and this aspect of being a human. What does it mean? And so uh, very quickly, we agreed to work together on this
0: project. And there are about nine uh, community compassionate programs from around the country, creatively spotlighted and and sometimes interwoven in the film. So describe briefly the process of settling on where you were gonna take your cameras and which stories that you wound up telling.
4: Well, Kahani mentioned earlier that we were (coughs) reading um, and talking uh, to lots of people. And we we really uh, delved into political philosophy and economics and evolutionary biology. And we were looking at this through the lens of not just kindness, but compassion and empathy, uh, decency. And at a certain point, we said, okay, maybe we're a little full now, and let's do an exercise. And we asked ourselves with the small team that we had created by that time, when the film was done, uh, and we look back on our accomplishment. Are there questions that we can say now that we will have wanted to have answered? What might those questions be? And that turned into a fascinating conversation that resulted in six very simple questions, which are how do we raise our children? How do we teach our children? How do we take care of the sick and the dying? How do we live and work together? How do we welcome the stranger? And how do we lead? We felt that those questions kind of sum it up and let's start looking for programs that really are are addressing those questions with a a sort of a philosophical approach that leads with kindness and decency. it wasn't long after that conversation and, and, and this moment where we felt, okay, this is really helpful, that our worlds kind of got rocked. And I'll, I'll let Kahani talk about that.
2: You know, we we, as John said, we had these questions, and then Charlottesville happened, which you know was was such a moment of shock and reckoning for for us and for so many people in this country and it it's not that we were unaware of the you know terrible injustices that plague this country but we hadn't focused on it through this lens of kindness and and we realized that um It wasn't just enough to ask those initial six questions, that we need to put them in the context of what we ended up calling the fundamental unkindnesses that we identified as just being part of everyday society here for so many Americans in every, sorry, everyday life. So those fundamental unkindnesses are, you know, lack of a safe place to sleep, lack of access to health care lack of an ability to earn a living wage and the injustices of racism is you know fundamentally unkind sexism and homophobia are fundamentally unkind and we took those unkindnesses and we sort of put them side by side with our questions and together those all became our north stars the our, our way our lens that we looked through to really start finding powerful stories that we could show and not tell what people were doing in light of all of these and also the right stories that could work together obviously also we're making a film so these things the stories need to be visual they need to have potential subjects that that you that you care about where there are stakes and so you know All of that was criteria for the stories that we landed on.
0: Right, and we're going to meet a couple of the subjects that were included in the film. Uh, Diamond Harges uh, is one, and I watched a TED Talk that he gave about his work. We'll hear more about it later, but in general, he said it's not about helping a few people beat the odds, which would seem like enough of an inspiration to do the work, and it's always great to see, but he said that you want to improve the odds for everybody, and what I hear you describing here is a an effort to um, show the small picture, uh, but also pull back or go, as we like to say at Peace Talks Radio, go upstream to find the sources and the way that this work can be replicated or can provide larger change that is really going to make a difference. Is that a fair Reconstruction of what you've been describing.
4: Well, I love the way you just put that, um, and I, I, it's a it's a completely different way of characterizing the film than I've heard others express or we have, you know, um, used ourselves. But it, it it it's absolutely appropriate. Knowing creatively that we were going to be telling multiple stories, we also knew that we were making a film um, in which the sum is intended to be greater than the parts. And it's that sum that you're talking about. Um, What are those upstream issues or, or you could say even opportunities? We hope that the film opens up conversations about the kinds of communities that we live in or that we want to live in and about the country we live in and what kind of country we want this to be.
0: Connie Cooperman and John Hoffman are the co-directors of the film, The Antidote. And uh, we're talking with them today on Peace Talks Radio. And we're going to be talking later with the Amman Harges of Indianapolis. And uh, teacher Sherry McIntyre teaches uh, religious history uh, in school in California. And I don't want to set up a scenario that feels anything like saying who your favorite children are. But there are time limits to our discussion today. If each of you could pick a couple of others... That when you see their stories, even now, even after seeing this film and this footage hundreds of times in the making of it, still moves you deeply. John, do you want to take a crack at that one?
4: Sure. It's a very brief moment, um, but for some reason, it always makes me choke up. It's near the end of the film, and it's a scene on a beach in Anchorage, Alaska, where Uh, some of the young men who are refugees from the Democratic Republic of Congo, who had spent years in refugee camps in Rwanda before being resettled by the UN resettlement agency in Anchorage, Alaska. So some of these young men in the scene I'm thinking of are are so new to this country. And they're speaking to each other in Kin Rwandan. And one asks the other uh, if he's happy. He's been in the United States. He's been in Anchorage for, really, I don't know if it's more than two months. And the way that Daniel answers that question, the confidence uh, with which he says, yes, he's happy.
1: And
0: the
4: way he talks about the opportunities that are bef- you know before him, it just gets me every time because the audience understands the tremendous pain that all these people carry with them from um, being refugees. In this case, their entire lives living in a refugee camp, they truly. Our understanding of, of the good fortune that they have by being resettled and that they're together, their family that has been able to um, stay together. So it just, it's just in that very brief moment um, where that question is asked and, and answered that there's just, to me, is just so much meaning. And then it's just in such a unique setting on this beach with the city of Anchorage in the distant background, you know, and they've spent a few minutes tossing rocks at a little floating iceberg. (laughs) It just, it just moves me every time.
0: Kahani.
2: I would say uh, in the Amarillo college story, which um, just quickly is the story of a community college um, in the panhandle of, of West Texas, where, the vast majority of students are first generation college students. And as the president, Russell Lowry Hart, realized, like a majority percentage were never graduating. And he set about to find out why. And what he discovered is that it wasn't academic barriers, which is what he had assumed it would be, it was life barriers. It was the basics, it was transportation, it was utilities, it was rent. It was all of these things. So when he realized that it was the life barriers, he had this revelation that has really stuck with me and affected me, which is, he says, I always thought it was everyone else's responsibility to deal with those things, but I realized it was Amarillo college's responsibility. When we were, uh, embedded in, um, the Student Resource Center, uh, where you see lots of, you know, incredible efforts happening by the social workers that that help these students. Um, there were other moments that, un- that literally walked through the door and that unfold, and we were able to follow, you know, those students, such as Angelique, um, who has trouble paying her with her car payment. And you can see how the whole community comes together to help out with that. Maybe we could call the car place and advocate for her. I don't mind doing that, but I was also thinking of maybe asking if the church can help. <phone rings>
5: Auto
2: connection. I was calling in regards to um, one of your
0: customers, Angelique Martin. Okay.
1: If we were going to improve their education attainment, we had to connect them to resources that our community had to help them overcome the life barriers that they experienced every day that's where the magic is for our community because that's how we're going to break the cycle of poverty that, that is not just crippling the Amarillo or Panhandle region. It's going to cripple our entire country. But the only way someone who's grown up in generational poverty is going to be able to get a degree and to move out of it is if they have support and resources. And we're we're trying to systemically do that here.
4: Jordan Herrera. I'm here to pick up a check from Mark. Um, Is he here today?
1: Got a check right here for you.
4: Thank you so much, Mark. We appreciate it.
2: So he created this culture of caring, not just within the university, but with community partners all around the city. And he's just got buy-in from from the entire, you know, village of this small city of Amarillo, Texas. So here's the check for $300 for Angelique. Mm-hmm. Our gratitude for helping her well, out. And-,
0: and here's what I'm going to do. We're going to kick in a little gift ourselves. So
2: oh, but that's first amazing. First,
0: forgive charge, and we're going to forgive an extra $100. Well,
2: thank you so much. And the graduation rate, ha- rate has increased exponentially. And so we focus on... Um, Some of the, you know, one in particular, but some students that are helped by the programs he set up. And it's really moving. And it's the question of who's responsible for what has stuck with me um, as something that um, I'll carry with me all my days, I think. I want to always be asking myself that question.
0: Now, when you tell that story, and I don't want to throw spoilers in here. Uh, but, you know, I'll just say that you focus on one uh, single mom who is at the beginning, you know, really struggling, and then you chart her success. Let's just put it that way.
2: There was something about Alicia, um, who we meet in the film, who, you know, moved me to my core. I felt like she was so relatable to and so genuine and honest. Going to school,
1: working full time at night, I went months without seeing my son. He didn't want me when I was home. He wanted my mom. He was calling my mom, mom. And uh, it sucked. I really thought I could hold it down, but I was freaking out about my bills. When I tell you I'm broke, I am broke. I'm the one who stays up crying in the middle of the night wondering like, how am I gonna pay this? How are we gonna make it?
2: I didn't know how her story was going to turn out, but she had certainly been to some, you know, extremes of the human experience, um, and not in a great way. Uh, that made me feel compelled by her. So, you know, she's she's the one who we decided to take a chance to a chance with, um, and and you know, it, it worked out in ways we couldn't have dreamed of.
4: We knew that we had to find other words to describe the film, that just to say that it's a film about kindness um, on its own, if we just called the film kindness, that we would potentially lose a, a big part of the audience that we wanted to reach because they would say, oh, that's sweet? But that can't be that interesting. We do say, you know, stories about kindness, decency, and the power of community. And that phrase, the power of community was relatively late in the way that we Characterize the film. And we also say that it was made in response to the times we're living in. Because we do want to signal that the film is aware of the times we're living in. And we do want to speak about decency and the power of community, because we think that those words also signal to people, we hope they signal to people, that the film is, is, is examining the sort of forces that are really being challenged right now in all of our lives. So I don't know if I'm expressing this all that well, but I think that the inadequacies of the word kindness because of the Kumbaya associations with it are something that we have been working against from the very, very beginning.
0: John Hoffman, co-director of the 2020 film documentary The Antidote, We also heard from Kahani Cooperman, the other co-director of the film. You can hear our much longer interview with the two of them at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. To find ways to stream the film itself, yourself, at home, go to theantidotemovie.com. That's theantidotemovie.com. And we'll have that link on our website, too. Ahead we speak with two other subjects of this powerful film about the courage and fortitude that it takes to put kindness first in your life every day when Peace Talks Radio continues right after this break. Today on Peace Talks Radio, we're putting the spotlight on a 2020 film documentary called The Antidote, subtitled Stories of Kindness, Decency, and the Power of Community in America. We're going to meet the first of two subjects featured in the film, first being Diamond Harges in Indianapolis, Indiana. He created a nonprofit called The Learning Tree, described on its website as an association of neighbors that specializes in asset based community development that brings neighbors and institutions together to discover the power of their own gifts and the power of being a good neighbor. In the film, we see Diamon helping young people explore that fertile ground for compassion by walking with them as they go door to door to meet their neighbors. And we also see Diamon showing the filmmakers a special gathering place in the community. It's a bike
5: shop. It's kind of a community hub. And it is ran by us at tree and neighbors, elders, and young people, right? So we kind of co-opt the shop. We do bike sales, we do bike mechanic stuff. We also do some ag- advocacy around um, people in transportation and from our neighborhood. And it is probably a place where you, during the summer times you see the most gatherings and parties happen. You have uh, people who haven't seen each other for a long time or have had quarrels. Uh, become reacquainted as friends. I probably should set a little context. Uh, the neighborhood where we live and where the shop exists has been a rough place. And not only just economically and socially, but it also has a lot of police runs that come through the neighborhood. Also, the the image of the neighborhood has been told that it's a bad place to be. And so I think our responsibility is like co-owners of the shop is to really help shape the image of people and tell the whole story of people that live there. And so like how we found the shop and this is a practice of ours is finding what people do already and to invest in them and um, their young people was hanging out with twos popping willies and we approached them in a way that said, Hey, uh, we'd like to come become your business partners. And we <laughs> we invested the first 500 bucks to buy equipment like stands and extra tools for them to open the shop up. Um, And it kind of took off from there. And it's funny too, when we started asking about the young people that knew about tools and had shop, they were telling stories about other neighbors and other adults in their lives. And some of those people were, had images, right? And I thought this would be a great place to do that. And um, it was unexpected to we thought this was going to be something with young people, but that, oh, we had somebody 70 years old hanging out at the shop working with young people. I mean, it was beautiful. It's, it's a beautiful thing.
0: What in your life story do you credit with the you know, inspiration to do the work that you're doing in your community, the way that you're doing it? Who were your first teachers, do you think?
5: Well, I, I go back first to my grandparents because they, they come from a community that was similar to mine, probably in a more harsher conditions. And the thing that they, I knew that two things they valued: the stories of uh, of others, right, sharing stories, and then the kindness of neighbors. And so that's my first. In two thousand, the year two thousand, I met my friend Mike Mather. He is a pastor, pastor now, and we spent we've been knowing each other for twenty years. So he recognized. That probably was one of the things that I was doing that was a gift of mine. And it was kind of shocking to know that I thought it was, didn't think it was valuable.
0: In your TED Talk, you talked about Montel, a neighborhood teen who got involved in one of your initiatives, who seemed to have the gift to help people in a big way, who told you that he never thought his acts of compassion in his own family or his own inner circle mattered. That must have sounded familiar based on what you just told me.
5: It is. I think it's, it's just what we start to realize. Like with the bike shop, I don't think the kids believe that people were listening. Sometimes the acts of kindness are just really small things, right? And listening and being present was is one of those. And you got to name it too. And what happened with Montel happened with the bike shop. We named it. We said, you guys have a gift in this. You, young men and women, Montel, you have a gift as a healer. We see that.
0: You speak in that TED Talk of yours too, that we'll be linking to on our website, by the way, of the South African word, Let's see if I'm saying it right, Saabona? Sabona. Sabona. So tell us what that word means and how it anchors some of your work in the community.
5: Um, it means I see you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it's, and the response is Sekona or Yebo, Um It means it's good to be seen or acknowledge your being. It's more than saying hi. South Africa, one of my favorite places to go (laughs) and meet my friends, but it is grounded in it because I believe that the first step into creating things like the bike shop, um, supporting Montel and his gifts, is to stop and pay attention and be present.
0: Right. And one of your nicknames is a bit of a takeoff on the name of your friend, Reverend Mike Mather. He was called Pastor of the Streets, and you are named the Roving Listener. Uh, is that something that people have assigned to you or do you proudly say that's who I am?
5: I, I proudly wear that. I proudly wear the roving listener and actually it was, I'm co-created Mike and I, and it came out as a joke, but my role is really, I mean, it was something I was already doing. It wasn't like something that came up as an idea. And it was a group of people just like Montel said, Hey, we see you do this. And I was really shocked. So, but that is continuous my role in the community and I play um the Robin Listener in so many different ways.
0: So in the film, as you mentioned, you're you're shown walking down the street with three youngsters and you're gently trying to get them to kinda of open up about their families. What about um, you?
4: My mom she good at cooking for me
1: or my family. And I like how she feed me. Well everybody. I like how she feeds me and she gives me clothes to her and a shower and a roof and, and that's all. And I like how my mom is good at teaching me
2: how to be a better person.
5: I remember that scene and um, what was interesting is I never really got to see out of all these years of doing that. Everybody know they laugh at me because they know it's like, oh, they throw people in front of me now, my neighbors. They like hey, this this guy right here, come here. And I mean, I love it that they do that, but that was the, um, I think they were wonderful storytellers. I think the magic also, there are always things like this and people that, that gather like this in these rough places. But the magic is, is when you have people that can hold the story, a community stories. So all of those stories they told wove well, beautifully together, and it is a role. It is like being a roving listener itself. They did a wonderful job at at holding that space, asking the right questions. Because I can imagine we interrogated them, you know, in some in the first place. And I can imagine communities want to know. Like we don't want to just be put out there if this a false sense of kindness, right? But they were awesome
0: a piece of the project is is that you hire people to go out and meet their neighbors. So talk a little bit more about what was going on as we watched them knock on doors and and what kind of uh, reinforcement or improvement in the community is uh, coming out of, of that effort.
5: Most people uh, always ask about the fear of doing that. But the thing we do is make it simple. We don't tell people to do what they don't already know start with the person you know already because most likely we haven't asked their gifts.
0: Say more about the process though of asking their gifts. Okay. So what do those conversations sound like? How do they start? Uh, where do they go and what feels rich and important about them? So I was
5: just, so a great example of just how you and I had started entering a conversation. Oh, you,
0: you saw, you, you saw a Bonnie Raitt poster over my shoulder here in my office. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
5: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and so that idea, and we started talking about that, those are the moments where people build connections at. So, so what we do is really train people to spot up, how do we know when people's gifts are being activated? And so with those young people, they'll, they'll after they go visit people, they'll come back and say, hey, they lit up, they smiled, they named another name, right? Um, they were animated. And those are the things we describe. Because, and then they said, or oh, I tasted it. <laughs> or I heard it if it was a musician. Um, or they let me see their art, right? And so most of it is about really um, holding the question, but then being witness to what's there. A couple of little things that we use is knowing something about a person that they didn't think we know. So we kind of go do our little investigations. Then the next thing we'll do is, like, we'll bring people a gift. Sometimes it's just baking some cookies. It cause that usually loosens people up because most people are armed. I mean, you knock on their door, you know, they're not expecting you. And pe- some people get like, "What are you coming to do?" And um, it's okay to to have uh, people that don't trust. Right? That gives you that. That is your base measuring stick, and and making sure we have put time into it because. I remember uh, David. He's passed away. Passed away from cancer. But I remember I had an intern, and I knocked on his door. He was not happy, and in fact, he was almost violent. And it took a little minute, but his wife was there, and it was like, "We end up getting in." And his whole demeanor changed when he talked about being the first black bowler in the Hall of Fame of Indiana, <laughs> right? And then we ran across each other through another friend, and he was so embarrassed, he was like that. He didn't want to be me, right? And and we had become
0: good friends. Right. And that's the neutral space where you can begin because, because both parties have sort of decided to come out. I mean, the whole idea of neighborhood building is interesting to me because in, in every neighborhood I've been in, in each year that's gone by or each section of my life living in neighborhoods, it's been a little bit less likely than the days in the 1960s and early 70s. The kids would go out to play and play with each other. The parents didn't really need to know where they were. My mom had a cowbell that she would ring when it was getting dark or it was time to bring, you know, for dinner. I would like to think that there are still neighborhoods like that. I haven't seen that much in my bouncing around neighborhoods. You know, it seems to be more closed doors, fewer people on the porch. Long way of asking the question about these are these must be things in any neighborhood that are at play, and uh, if you could talk a little bit more about the ways that some of those obstacles can be overcome, some of the rigidness around it can be softened, um, and why it's important to keep trying. Because gosh knows it's easy to just say, "I'm just going to stay in my house. I'm you know I'm good enough because I kind of know my neighbors on either side of me and." but I'm not sure that that's going to get us in a better place as a country or world.
5: Yeah. Well, a couple of things, I think um, this is going to sound pretty odd for some people to think about this as an answer, but uh, throwing parties uh, is probably like the lowest hanging fruit praying gets you the most return Um, because it is the thing that everybody can play party in. Right. So people, all people know about what parties do. And I think, I believe there is where, it's where people uh, fall in love with each other. So in saying that we use that in a way um, that I, I have a gift for just knowing lots of people and different in different sectors, like people that don't look like us often come by my house and being black, right? You'll see, or you'll see socio-economic, different class of folks. We had a billionaire come hang out with us, one of the parties that becomes important because now it becomes culture over, over time, the practices. Um, so parties is good. Um, the other thing is I think you know on a municipal level, level, we have to get people to have practices in other places like that. So for us in our neighborhood, it was important that our congregation was in this practice, N- not just with us, but with themselves, right? So as an institution in our neighborhood, Though they did some fiscal support, um, but most of the biggest support was them also changing. And so part of um, what I think we don't value enough is time, the intent and time to have people come around. Because the first thing we do is try to move the bad apples out. And I'm not saying that that shouldn't or should happen, but what if we realized that we needed to build started to rebuild what we said we want and right right in the two or three block radius around our house that's how it started for us like it only took two blocks and now it's spread it like all over the city and actually the state of indiana Mm -hmm. in some places Mm -hmm.
0: talking with diamon harges from indianapolis involved in community work and the boys and girls bike shop that was featured in the antidote documentary on in the documentary, a blurb for the film that I saw mentions this phrase, despite fundamentally unkind realities in our society, there are people doing good work, essentially. Do you see our society as fundamentally unkind?
5: That's a great question. Um, I think that's really complex. That's pretty loaded, too, um, because I've experienced unkindness in this country, and I've watched people And we all watch people there. But I also see so much kindness and authentically kind people doing acts. And you would never hear of those acts. And that is the difference between seeing whether our society is or isn't um, kind and unkind. The other thing is I think that's important is that we need to pay attention to how we cultivate the structure of kindness, the structure of seeing kindness so intently go and look at it going to look at it. And what I love about John and Kahani actually went and looked for it, right? It's there and it's there everywhere. I mean, you can walk out your door and find it, but if your brain isn't set to look that way, right? So how do we retrain our society to see kindness? And of course, we always know there's gonna be a lot of unkind things, but to lift those up kind of influences, I think like uh, social media, has been an example of both like uh when when it goes bad people are going to share bad stories and depending on who sets the story right i said so you got to kind of set the precedence of like asking what are you going to make a choice are you going to make a stance that kindness is is your stance and if so how will you illustrate
0: that right yeah Spinning off on that, uh, you talk movingly about the scars that exist from being African American in today's United States. Uh, What's worked for you and feeling that for yourself and for helping us all live with it and beyond it and moving forward to a better place?
5: I think really the the big thing that I realized there are types of people you need for this work. Um, You need really good listeners, people who are being present. Um, You need people who know about connecting people for no agenda because they believe people. And then you need people who have the gift of healing. Like my neighbor January, so I struggle with depression and all my neighbors that I love, my closest neighbors and friends, like if I'm going through depression, they'll knock on my door, take me for a walk. Cause my wife had told people, this is what he needs. Get him out the house. Um, people like January gather those people together. And I think that has healing our own souls, finding spaces where small groups of people can be vulnerable and share the traumatic scars, not to live in the scar, but to celebrate the the things that they overcome despite those scars. And so January and people like her has to be in the mix. Like how are we supporting people that do healing? Mm. And I think if we did that, starting like in our civic life right the municipalities and the big government we started in those spaces and then we implement that into schools right so i think um that that's how i've been able to deal with it and i think that community of love and caring is is very important because it i know if i say that i have an issue or a problem i won't be ridiculed
0: there are people looking out for you and those networks take some work to develop and are worth investing and risking to get. Yeah. Diamant Harges, community organizer in Indianapolis, Indiana. His work and the work of his colleagues at his nonprofit, The Learning Tree, and the work of his neighbors to help lift up individuals in the community are all featured in the 2020 film documentary called The Antidote. You can go to theantidotemovie.com to see Diamond's story and eight other moving stories of kindness and compassion. And you can hear my entire interview with Diamond at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. Another short break here, then back with a teacher who believes that teaching young people about the main world religions can help plant a seed of tolerance for the future. More Peace Talks Radio just ahead. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Online at peacetalksradio.com and our podcast is available on iTunes from Apple. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. Today we're featuring a 2020 film documentary called The Antidote, Stories of Kindness, Decency and the Power of Community in America. Earlier, we talked with the film's co-directors Kahani Cooperman and John Hoffman. One of the questions they said they hoped their film would address is, how do we want to teach our children? And there are a couple of segments in this film about that. One features a class of ninth graders and their teacher, Sherry McIntyre, at the Peter Johansson Public High School in Modesto, California. Since the year 2000, Sherry has been teaching a class on world religions at the high school and she talks about the impact that could be having on raising kids to become compassionate and tolerant adults. This semester class, which starts with a unit on world geography, is a requirement for all freshmen in the entire Modesto, California public school district. As of this recording, it's the only one in the country with such a requirement.
3: A lot of people assume that because it's a world religions class, what does that really have to do with kindness? But the truth is, the only way that we're going to be able to get along in a world where we understand each other through the eyes of religion is if we are kind and compassionate and understanding and listen to each other and accept each other's differences instead of constantly trying to prove ourselves right or prove the other person wrong. And for me, that all begins with kindness.
0: Doing it for so many years, I'm hoping you can answer this question, but what turns out to be the most powerful elements of the course that seem to get the students' attentions that are kind of the reliable, oh wow moments each year or semester?
3: Students love the introduction. They love learning about their rights. They, we talk about legal cases. We talk about the Supreme Court. And how they judge um, First Amendment rights, uh, particularly freedom of religion cases. And they really like hearing about their rights. And so they always get very excited about that. They, when we get into the religions themselves, what they tend to see is the similarities between religions. And I think for a lot of students, that comes as a surprise. And that usually sparks a lot of, of enthusiasm because they begin to. They see themselves in others. They see what they're familiar with from their religion through the eyes of other religions and the pieces all start to fall together and they begin to see how much more alike religions are than different.
0: And what's a compelling example of several of the religions, and I won't ask you to go through all 10, um, sharing a common precept
3: Well, all of the religions, the major religions that we study have a version of the golden rule. And that is that's the way I introduce each religion is by teaching that religion's version of the golden rule, which is obviously treat other people the way you want to be treated. Or it could be worded, don't treat other people in a way you would not want to be treated. So we look at how each religion approaches that idea of the kindness that we should be showing each other. And that, that is, um, that's something that they see right at the beginning that we all have in common is this, this requirement by their religion or by all religions to really treat each other with kindness and compassion. Um, They also pretty quickly start to see that there's a lot of similarities in the fact that they, most of them have some sort of sacred text. Most of them have um Plenty of holidays or rituals, those are the types of elements of religion that that they see commonalities in over and over.
0: I'm going to guess that participation in the class doesn't require that they ever share exactly what their faith might be. How is that handled?
3: That's right. I don't ask occasionally. they will they'll share with me their own personal um, faith. Sometimes it's because it's a minority faith, and they're just tickled to death that that someone's talking about their religion, and they're just proud that when we get to Buddhism, I'll have a student who will say i'm buddhist and and they're just so thrilled to be able to to say that and proud that they can share that I try to present each religion as if it were coming from me personally I try to be i try not to use words like like um i don't i don't want to say." I believe, I say they, but I, I, I always keep it very neutral when we get to, I think maybe they're waiting to hear me say, we believe blah, 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 but it never happens. I never say we, I always refer to the religion as they, they believe as I'm like, like I'm an outsider looking in, but at the same time, I will defend it as if it's my own. And they know pretty quickly, don't, don't say anything rude. Don't say anything judgy. Uh, Be very kind in in your statements. I'm very careful to to let them know they they have the freedom to ask a question and to have a comment, but that they should always think about how they word the question or the comment. They shouldn't say, why do they believe that? Because that just sounds judgy. But if they said, that's interesting, where did that belief come from? Now you're just curious. And anyone in the room who practices that faith is going to be flattered that you want to know more. So I kind of teach them how you properly word a question or make a comment or have an opinion in a way that is fair to both you and anyone else in the room.
0: You mentioned that there are 10, I think you said, 10 kind of uh, uh, religions that you cover? Mm -hmm, Yes. Is that the number? Okay. So how much time do you spend with atheism or agnosticism? I saw in the documentary, I think you were referring to it.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do. We define it. I talk about what it means, but we don't spend a great deal of time um, beyond uh, defining it and understanding what it means. We. Um, I know that's one area that I think I would like to go deeper into. Personally, I think it would be fascinating to start or to include many different viewpoints beyond religion. But unfortunately we really we really cram quite a lot into the amount of time we have as it is. If I were to design this class like from scratch with the 20 years of experience, uh, I, first of all, I would make it a whole year. That would be fantastic instead of two thirds of a semester. And I would include a lot more uh, other vo- other viewpoints Atheist, agnostic, Um, we'd go deeper into um, like maybe Native American traditions, and there's a lot we don't get a chance to cover. Covering 10 in the amount of time we have is a lot.
0: Yeah, I guess I was just thinking that even if you define agnosticism, for example, Mm -hmm. that the result of learning about 10 other world religions and being encouraged to have an open mind about them could lead a student to saying, well, they all sound pretty good to me. I'm not sure. I don't know which would make me an agnostic. You <laughs> know, so yeah, uh,
3: I suppose it sure could because you're right. We do start out defining what is it to be atheist and what is it to be agnostic. What is a humanist? Uh, we do talk about you know scientific perspectives, and I, but I don't spend a lot of time on any of those things. I just sort of give them a real general understanding that there are other viewpoints besides religious. And then we jump into 10 religions and by the time they're done, they have a lot of information.
0: Now, I think we skirted up around this next topic before. Uh, maybe it was in our pre-interview too, but I think you told me that there has never been Explicit resistance to the schools from the school's uh, world religion curriculum from parents in any large or organized way, if at all? Did you say there's not been a peep from parents in 21 years?
3: To my knowledge, if there has been any complaints, it hasn't been to me, um, but it is taught at all the high schools. So if any of the other teachers have had conversations with parents, to um to quell their fears and to um to to give them a little bit of um a little bit more information about the class i wouldn't if if that happened it was so simply taken care of that it didn't become well known because i've not heard of any major complaints from from individual parents and certainly absolutely nothing large and organized no
0: well, if other school districts around the country have even been talking about this, wouldn't you imagine that that would be an obstacle that a school board member would say right away? It's like, can you imagine the parents in our community you know, uh, screaming about uh, you know, indoctrination or uh, challenging faith or anything like that?
3: Nothing. Nothing. Mm-hmm. You're right. Every time I'm asked that question, I, and I answer it honestly, I always worry. I'm like, oh my gosh, um, hopefully that doesn't change. But it, it's been 21 years now. And still, I honestly and truly believe that a big part of it is the fact that we teach this class in such an objective way, that we don't proselytize, that we teach not preach, that not only do we teach the class that way, But we explicitly tell our students that we will be teaching, not preaching, that this is not about trying to convince you of anything. This is just background information for you to live your lives and to take to your history class, by the way. Next year as a sophomore, um, world history is full of religious situations. And if you have the background knowledge, all of it makes more sense. So we spend a lot of time talking about the reason why they're taking this class and why it's important. And I think by the time they're done, if they had any doubts about what the class was about, they, they shouldn't because we make it pretty clear.
0: You can hear a longer interview with Sherry McIntyre, the high school teacher of world religions in Modesto, California, at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. You can hear complete interviews at that site too with our earlier guests, John Hoffman and Kahani Cooperman, the co directors of the 2020 film documentary, The Antidote Stories of Kindness, Decency, and the Power of Community in America. And also our interview with Diamond Harges, one of the many community change agents featured in the film. The link to view the film for yourself is theantidotemovie.com, and we have that link on our website too. Also at our website, our programs dating back to 2002 are all there for you to hear. Also at peacetalksradio.com, there's a donate button. You can click on there to ensure that Peace Talks Radio continues its work of elevating news of good peace work for years to come. We count on support from listeners like you, as we are our own nonprofit organization, separate and apart from the media outlet you might be listening to us on right now. We're grateful over the years for the support of KUNM at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque, also from the Albuquerque Community Foundation, Ties Fund. Special thanks to our broadcasting colleagues, Jay Kernis and Mo Rocca at CBS Sunday Morning, who featured the antidote film on one of their TV programs. That's how we learned about it. A link to their report is also at our website, too. Nola Davis-Moses is the executive director of Good Radio Shows, Inc., the nonprofit organization that produces our show. Allie Adelman wrote and performs our theme music. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks so much for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.